Uh, I've titled the message today, A Personal Invitation from Jesus. A Personal Invitation from Jesus. So let's stand and read together. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. We're going to look at the last five verses of the chapter. And then make a couple points about this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. You may be seated. So also, if you were listening, uh, and I didn't, I wasn't even aware that we were going to have this beautiful special this morning, but uh, wonderful that it was. I hope you were listening to the lyrics of that. Very famous song, very, uh, a song that's been around for a long time. But if you're listening carefully, you heard a heart of submission out of that from the writer. You heard a heart of willingness to open themselves up to the things of God and acknowledging God for who he is. Now, interestingly, uh, just recently, uh, very recently, I read an article by a guy who was, uh, I shouldn't say raised an atheist, but at least was an atheist most of his early days and has come to Christ. And he wrote this article called Nine Reasons People Don't Believe in God. And I thought that's pretty intriguing. I'd like to see what he has to say. Well, here's some of those reasons. He says, number one, growing up in a faithless family. Um, that's referring to people who perhaps had no father to give them a spiritual guidance or a mother to give them spiritual guidance. But specifically, he pointed out the father and the father's role as it's so critical for earthly fathers to be examples of who God is. And so often we are given... ...would say, yeah, I just didn't have any kind of family to help me grow in the faith. Secondly, he said that they, people stopped believing because they were never told why to believe. And the idea here was, he said, that a lot of times people grow up, and we Baptists are guilty of this a lot of times, of just hearing the warnings, the judgment of God, and never understanding why there are warnings and why there is a judgment coming. And that is that Christ has come to redeem us and to set us free uh, for salvation, but the reason we believe all of that is because God in his holiness is going to judge unrighteousness. And the reason he's going to judge unrighteousness is because he's holy. There is no justice without judgment from a holy God. And it's almost as if God cannot be God in his holiness if he doesn't judge unrighteousness. But a lot of people miss that point. They don't understand that God is actually giving to us a great act of mercy to appease himself and to set us free. They just hear the judgment side. And that's kind of where he was coming from with that. People have experiences in college where they get kind of derailed in their faith because they go to hear a religion course or take part in a religion course or some professor that guides them in a way that is leading them away from Christ instead of to Christ. Our son was like that, our, uh, our oldest son. When he was at VMI, he had a religion professor that really caused him to... To, to think about what he had learned being brought up. I remember he called and said one time, you know, 
what I'm learning in this class is so different from anything that you teach out of the Bible. And we say, well, that doesn't surprise us. That's the way the world is. But that can derail people if you're not very careful. And so that was number three. Fourthly was unanswerable questions. People have questions for God. Why this? Why that? Why didn't this happen? Why did he do this? And there just seems to be no good answers in their minds at least. Fifthly, emotional challenges. I prayed and I prayed and God didn't answer my prayer. And so, um, you know, I'm just not sure that I can follow him or who he says he is or what somebody teaches him to be. Sixth was tension over different faiths, thinking that, you know, there really shouldn't be this tension. Uh, There are multiple ways to God, and so we should just all be equal in our belief system. I'm not saying these are right. I'm just saying this is what people believe, he says. Seventh, not wanting to humble themselves to follow God. That's a big one. You know, if we're going to do a hierarchy here, I think I'd put that right at the top. Is that our big problem is people don't want to say, yeah, there's a God that I need and I can't be my God myself. Uh, eight, issues about sex or gender. You know, that's a big one these days. Um, people who say that there shouldn't be any distinction there uh, or the church just teaches negatively about gay and lesbian lifestyles and so I don't want anything to do with that. And then ninthly would be politics, where the church is just so involved in politics and, or maybe having a negative opinion or a different politics than the person might have. And so anyway, these things are reasons that he gave. He said there are others, but these are the predominant ones that came up. And I thought it was interesting because if you listen carefully, at least in my mind as I listen to what he was writing, you hear each of these reasons missing the biggest point of all, which is they miss Jesus for who he is. There's a missing of the relationship that God wants with all people that he has called to himself. And we'll qualify that in just a minute. Now, the Lord knows that about people. He knows that being all these things and whatever else we want to throw in there, the reasons why people struggle to follow him. And so in our section today, he does three things. First, he's going to clarify the fact that his father is in sovereign control over every salvation that occurs. That's number one. Number two, he's going to explain his own personal relationship with the Father. And then thirdly, he's going to give this incredible invitation as a personal invitation into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, So let's break these down. And I I want to say this too, is that as I looked through various commentaries, I realized much of these first few verses are left out by a lot of commentators. Not all, but many. Uh, And I think it's because there are depths of information here that most people want to get past. We're going to just touch on some of them. I could spend a lot of time in each one of these particular subjects, the doctrine of election versus free will, how those two merge together. All these things begin to arise out of this context. Mostly people just want to hear the latter verse, verse 30, and that is our 29 and 30 that is come to me. And I want to hear about the rest. Well, we'll get to that part, but we have to understand what the Lord is doing here in the beginning in order to really appreciate the rest that he is offering. So let's start with the first part here as he clarifies his father's sovereign control over salvation. Notice now in verse 25, it says at that time, this is seemingly is right in the context of the finishing of the other part of John the Baptist and the people that are listening to the conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. And then as he turns to the crowd and offers the warnings that he did, Jesus now lets them in on his own personal prayer. Whenever this context is, some have questioned whether it's right away or just shortly thereafter, but whatever we're told, it's really close to that. He says, I praise you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth. And that's a big statement. It'd be a big statement for anybody listening at the time. So as he knows that people are listening to him, he knows that he's just given this incredible warnings. At least that's the way we portrayed them in the last couple messages about what's going to happen if you don't give your life to the Lord. Eternal judgment is going to occur. So he, he says, in my way of thinking here, I know that these people are going to need some encouragement and clarification. And so he prays and addresses God as his father in a heart of praise, in a way to elevate God. And by doing that, I think he's not just honoring God as God, but he's also acknowledging that the father is the one who is in control of all things. It's as if Jesus is taking the people's minds and he's showing them that the father that they say that they know as Jewish people is a God who is in sovereign control of all things. In fact, the word Lord here is the word for master or head. So they would know that. That would not be something he would have to identify for them any more than it would be in the context of how we talk today. But meaning specifically that Jesus is identifying his father as the master or supreme one over a couple things. Heaven, and that would be pretty obvious, but also earth and the salvation of souls of men and women. So three things. I praise you, Father, sovereign one over heaven and earth and even the very souls of men and women. Now, what this says to me is Jesus wants us to know it is not our job as his followers to save people. And you say, well, I get that. Uh, well, do we? Do we get that? There are often times where we're so consumed with loved ones and uh, people that we care about, uh, family members, children, whomever it might be, to the point where we become burdened, overly burdened by helping them to come to know the truth. And we should sense a burden or feel a weight of a burden a little bit, but not to the point where we're overwhelmed by it. Oftentimes people are so overwhelmed by the fact of thinking there's something they have to do, some word they have to say, some action they have to perform, whatever it might be, in order for their loved one to be saved, that they begin to carry this burden in a way that God would not for, have for us to do. Our role is to be witnesses. We're the message bearers. We're the ones who just bring the light, but it's God himself who does the work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Okay, now we can elaborate a lot on what Paul's talking about there, but just basically he's saying what I just said, is that what God is looking to you and me for as his children is not to save people, but to be faithful in the way we live our lives in front of others. God will do the work of reaching people. Remember, it is Jesus's church. He will build his church. You and I have no ability to do that. And so it does no good to worry about what we should be doing or not doing. Now, consider it concerned, yes, but worry, never. It is not our job to open the hearts and open the minds of people. We can't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. Again, we should do everything in our power to be good witnesses. We should be circumspect of our lives, cautious about what we say, where we go, what we do, how we live this life. But at the end of the day, we can't open a heart to Jesus. We can't do it. As much as we love people, that's God's job. And Jesus is acknowledging that truth in this statement. And notice what he says next, because he's going to make this even clearer. I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and the intelligent. What things? Well, what he just said. You are Lord over heaven and earth and even the souls of men. But you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Now, who's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about people who have gone to school and gotten an education. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who were the religious leaders in Israel. He's doing a picture here for the people to understand. They were the scripture experts. They were the leaders. The problem was they didn't really know God. There was not an intimacy of knowledge about who he is. There was no personal relationship between them and God. And that was because to the Jew, there was no such thing as a personal relationship with God. Israel was the son of God, if you will, the child of God in a national sense. There was no fatherly relationship there. And so to understand God as father would be simply to understand that he is the father of the nation, but not in the intimacy of what Jesus is expressing here. And so this was a new kind of thing here, something that troubled them greatly. All they knew was God, the father of the nation, had given them laws to go by, making them religious people, but no real relationship with him in a personal sense. And so this was very uh, revealing. This was a great revelation that Jesus is expressing here. And there have been people who are religious people. In fact, most people who have any kind of understanding about the things of God at all are quote-unquote religious people. These are the people that can tell you about the Bible. They've had some training, some upbringing in the things of God. Maybe even hold positions and high positions in the church, positions of leadership. But also are the kind of people who maybe abandon the truth of God for the God that they want or make up a God that they think he ought to be or make up a God in their own minds. And I think that fits well with the article that we just read. If you wanted to put some kind of understanding to why people abandon God or reject God, it's because of this. They may have a knowledge of religious things, and even intuitively, and we know this is true, they may not know, but Romans 1, you know, tells us that there's the knowledge of God in the heart of every person. But they don't know him for who he really is, and they don't know him because, and this is Jesus' point, God has never revealed himself to them. Now, that's a little tough for us to swallow, but that's what Jesus is teaching us. God is the one who opens the heart. And so if God is not opening the, opening the heart, then they're left to themselves to think about whatever it is that they will do, that they can how, somehow achieve righteousness on their own or by what they do or who they are. But that has never been God's plan of righteousness. Righteousness has always come as a direct result of, yes, being obedient to God through the legal system that God imposed through Moses, that's how people were made righteous. But now Jesus is clarifying and saying, wait a minute, I'm going to tell you I'm the righteous one, which is where he's going to go next. And we'll get to that in just a second. So the point is, God is not some impersonal force out there. He's not just this theory or this idea or this concept and certainly not some God, if you will, in the sense of a lofty and high and exalted one who just has a big stick in his hand and wants to beat you over the head every time you break one of his commandments. That's not God. This is what Jesus is defining for them. He's not a God who just is up in heaven laughing hysterically at people that make mistakes, just rejoicing over the fact that he's going to be able to send some unsuspecting soul to hell. People think that way, though. 
And they think that way because God has not opened their mind to the truth, but also because they look around and they see things and make judgments about what they think they know, and it's not reality. But the truth is, beloved, He is a God who loves you, and He loves me enough to give us life. He's a God who wants to save us from His judgment and who will provide for us and wants a personal relationship with Him. Now, personal in the sense of not just like we would think, but a personal saving relationship that we see him as God who has come to do what I just said, and that is to provide a way for us to be with him one day. And so he, though, has to be the one to give us that ability. That's a lot to be thankful for this morning. If you're here today and you know that Christ is Lord of your life and you've submitted your heart to him in a humble means, recognizing who you are outside of him, there's a lot to be thankful for because what it means is God has done the work in your heart and mind to help you to see that. You didn't come up with that on your own. Now that's, again, counterintuitive for us because we think everything that hits our brain is something we come up with. After all, it's in my brain. But the truth spiritually is, no, you only understand the truth of everything of Scripture because God has given you the ability to know. Which is why Jesus adds this next point. He says, I praise you that you did not reveal this to the wise people, those people who were supposed to know. Remember, Jesus is always countering against these religious leaders. But you did reveal this truth to notice. Infants. Infants. Now, what's he talking about? Is he really talking about the babies of life here that we see sitting with us, the little ones? In the context of the language, the Uh, Translators have used the word infants. I didn't look up the word to see what age group that qualifies. Uh, But let's just suffice it to say, children that have no knowledge of anything. That's basically an infant, right? Somebody who has no knowledge of, of life. If you think about a baby for a minute, they only know what you teach them. Now, that's not totally true. You don't teach them to scream and cry and fuss. That's the sinful nature coming out. But what they do know that gets them along in this life, you basically have to teach them, right? They don't come out saying, oh, I got this, right? Go ahead, mom, take a break. I can fix my bottle, you know, no big deal. I know how to do all of this. No, they only know what to do because you've taught them. And they know what they know because you've helped them understand that they are helpless. You can't do this on your own. And so literally... And figuratively, they need your help with everything. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know that to be true, don't you? I love the conversations with the older folks now that have had children that are grown and, and gone on, and you ask them a question, hey, do you, don't you kind of miss those early child days when kids would wake you up at night screaming and crying? Don't you just want to go back to those days? I've never had anybody tell me they want to go back to those. Now, young moms, don't be offended by that. We've been there. We know what that's like. But the reality is there's time for us to move on past those things. Okay, so anyway, you understand the point here is that an infant is a person who needs help with everything. But Jesus now is, again, not talking about ability or age. He's talking spiritually. Even spiritually, people have to have everything given to them. And that only comes through God. God the Father, as the parent, gives everything that is necessary. Now, if you've ever been around somebody who's just come to faith in Christ, boy, they're just like little sponges, aren't they? They just absorb and and just want to hear everything that you have to say. 
I'm talking about somebody who's really seen what God has done for them. They're just so excited. And they just want to know everything that they can get into their, into their little heads. Hungry for whatever you can teach them. I love new believers like that. In fact, I often grieve at times when new believers begin to mature a little bit and uh, lose that childlike understanding because uh, sometimes they can head off down a path that's not so great, which is why the Apostle Paul, just as a side note, would give the instruction for leadership in the church is don't appoint somebody new to faith because there's a lot of things that they're going to need to mature through before they're actually in a position of leadership because they can be diverted in a lot of different ways. But just suffice it to understand that as a child, People take things and absorb them. And Jesus is using that kind of illustration from, from just that. In fact, um, not to, uh, I didn't ask her if it was okay, but I wanted to use little Anna for just a minute because she did such a marvelous job, didn't she, last week when she was reciting the verses for us, just giving evidence of how hard she's worked? I mean, are you all prepared to do your verses today? Can I ask you that? Bring me your, little book, bring me your Bible here and we'll go, the rest of us will listen to you recite those. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's amazing that she could do that. But here's what I would suspect. Now, Mom and Dad could correct me, and she might correct me. Uh, my guess is she couldn't explain theologically everything that she recited to us, right? My guess is she couldn't do that. But if you ask her if she believes in God, what do you think she'd say? Absolutely. Well, why does she believe in God? If you ask her that, she'd say, because he's God right? She doesn't need any more answers than that. She just accepts because God has helped her like a child to see the reality of who he is. And she believes God is God because she has a faith just to accept what she's been learning. Now, as she gets older, mom and dad will explain to her the scriptures and God will begin to open her heart to more understanding about why she believes. That's what we're doing. We grow in our faith because we have questions being answered for us about what God is revealing to us or about what the world or somebody else reveals to us. But for now, she just believes and that's all she needs. And that's sufficient. But you see, Jesus is coming back to that same point. Like little children, they don't need a lot of information. And I thank you, Father, that that's who you reveal the truth to. That you've opened the eyes of people who don't necessarily have all the theological understanding and all the answers for life, but just people who just trust you because they believe you to be God. And so Jesus is saying, the people who are spiritually helpless, like little babies, are the ones God does just that. Why? Because they don't make it hard. It's not challenging. They don't try to fuss and fume about every little nuance. Again, I'd like to talk to mom and dad here a minute after we're done and, and ask them, did did Anna have these questions about the text that she was reading? My guess is probably not, right? She just learned them and recited them. Why? Because, yeah, it's exciting to learn this in Awana. That's great. That's where it all starts. And then have the opportunity to share it with you as the church. But in her little mind, God is forming and fashioning things. And she's beginning to embrace those. And so people who are like infants are people who know they are nothing without God, right? If we could talk to an infant and they could actually make something audible, sound, making sense out of some sound from their mouth to us, they would say, I don't understand anything about life at all other than I'm hungry and I'm wet and I'm tired and feed me, put me to bed. They understand that kind of thing. 
but they know that they're nothing without him, and they have to have everything for them. And also, they have nothing to offer you as parents, do they, in that state? I mean, they're cute. They're fun, right? But they don't really do anything for you. They don't clean up after themselves. They don't pick up their room. They don't clean their clothes after they've spit up on themselves and all that kind of stuff. No, they have you totally to depend on. And that's why Jesus would say in the beginning of his sermon, way back in chapter 5, verse 3, it's the very first beatitude. Notice what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's no accident that Jesus starts with this. It wasn't like he just went through, and I know you've seen the movie The Chosen, and he, in his humanness, wrestled with what to say. But it's purposeful on his part that he started this way because his whole point in coming was to show us the kingdom. And so he says, you want to know who gets into the kingdom? The children, the poor in spirit, the adults who understand, like a child, I have nothing. I got to come to him that way. Now, to all of that, Jesus says in his prayer, as people are listening, notice in verse 26, yes, Father. It's almost like he's going, yes, this is good. This is good. For this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Meaning, God is delighted to help these kinds of people. The infants, the spiritually unable, the ones who are the humble, ones who know that they need God. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, as he's opening his thoughts to the church that was struggling with a lot of things. They were just dealing with a lot of issues in the culture. In verse 26, he says, for consider your calling, brethren. Again, very purposeful on the Spirit's part. God has called you. God has instituted the work first. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, in my words, this is not Paul saying this, but you were kind of a ragtag bunch. You didn't have anything to offer anybody anything. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Is that you this morning? I mean, can we just ask the question, what are you depending on? Are you depending on what you know in this life? I mean, are you, are you growing in such a way in life, and not necessarily a positive way, but are you growing in such a way where you're depending on all that you've come up with and the answers to the questions that you've been able to figure out? Is that what you're depending on? To be right with God and to live this life? You see, spiritually, the Lord is arguing just the opposite. He's saying that's not going to get you anywhere spiritually. What will get you somewhere is when you say, Lord, I don't have a clue about how to live this life unless you guide me. I'm fully surrendering myself to you. Because not only am I wanting to get away from the judgment, but I understand that I'll never make it into the kingdom if I don't realize you have to do the work. You have to fix me and make me what you want me to be. And part of that is abandoning our pride, letting it go. Letting go of the things that I think I can do and got to do. That's why James would say in James 4, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to what? To the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit yourself to God. You want to be right in God's eyes? You want to be a part of his kingdom? Submit yourself to him. 
Now that's the first part of this. Let's get to the second one. Jesus clarifies his personal relationship with the Father. So he's just done this beautiful preaching job in his prayer in one verse, really, and now he's going to qualify his own relationship with the Father. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So what you hear in this is Jesus saying, look, here's the Father. Here he is. I want to show you who he really is. Now guess what? He's given me everything. Wow. Okay, wait a minute. That'd be a mouthful. If you're a Jewish person listening to that, that'd be a real struggle. Because every Jew knew that God was the sovereign one over Israel. They wouldn't have a trouble with that. Not the father-personal relationship part, but they would understand he is God over heaven and earth. But to accept Jesus as the son of God? Preposterous. Not going to do it. And the reason they wouldn't do it is because of what God taught them in the Shema. The Shema is a word that just means hearing or to hear, and it's a Hebrew word. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. This was Moses giving the law to the people where it says that there is only one God over Israel. And God would do that because of where they just came from, which was Egypt, and, and different from all the rest of the nations around them who had many gods. So God is simply saying, no, there's only one God. And so for the Jew, they would listen to Jesus say, this is my father, and we have a personal, intimate relationship with one another, and they're going to say, not going to do it. Not going there. What's Jesus doing, though? Well, it doesn't really matter whether somebody believes or doesn't believe him in that sense. He's saying, here's the truth. My father is the one who is supremely overhead in charge of all things, but guess what? He's given me control of all things. He has given to me in this very intimate relationship with him everything that is necessary to bring someone into the kingdom. He's identifying himself. Again, all of which caused the Jews to have a great animosity toward him and would eventually put him on the cross. Now, you and I know that Jesus was fighting to get on the cross to save us because he loves us, but to the Jew, they were trying to get rid of him. But Jesus says, the truth is, I was sent by my Father to save all who will respond to his calling. Luke 19.10, to seek and to save all who are lost, spiritually speaking. And to do that, my Father has committed all things under my control. Listen how John the Apostle would write these words in John 5. Now he's writing for Jesus. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Now, how is he able to do that? He being Jesus. Because of what he just said. The Father has given to me power to do this. For not even the Father now judges anyone. Now, ultimately, the Father was the judge, but not any longer because the Son has come. The Messiah is here the king, the true king over Israel is now here. And so the father has given me the right to judge. Um, the latter part of verse 22. He has given all judgment to the son so that... Don't you love how the Lord answers his own statements and questions people have? All will honor the son even as they honor the father. Boy, there is a oneness there that is just amazing. He who does not honor the Son, therefore, in other words, if I'm one with the Father and you don't honor the Son, then the Father is not honored himself who sent me. Truly, verse 24, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. 
What's Jesus say? Eternal life comes through me now. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into, the, into life. So again, Jesus' point, very quickly summarizing, is that if he's not fully God, there's no salvation. Salvation only comes through him. You remember one of the problems that the guy who was the agnostic uh, Christian now, writer, said that people have a hard time believing that there's only one way to God. Well, that's a problem that Satan has thrown out there forever. Surely there's more than one ways to God, not according to God himself. And that's what Jesus is making clear here. And if we don't accept him as the Lord, then we were, would be like all the rest of the world, hopelessly lost and undone. Now, continuing, Jesus says in the second part of verse 27, And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Wow. Okay, basically saying there's no person who can know or could be a part of knowing all that the Father knows. That would be pretty intuitive. That's reserved for God alone. In other, way, in other words, man has no way of knowing what God is like. How could he? Right? That makes sense. He's God. I'm finite. He is infinite. So how can I know all things that God knows? You see why it's so foolish for us to get angry with God? But we do, don't we? Or we struggle with things of God's decisions at times. Why is that? Because our sin wants us to be God. We've been over this many times before. That's the drastic negative effects of the, of the fall. We think we have a better answer. And so we try to tell God what's going to be best. But that's impossible. We can't know God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows every single answer to every question that could ever come up. He is everywhere at one time. And so Jesus now is saying, if you understand that about the Father and you're willing to accept that, I want you to understand I am his son, making me God with him because there cannot be a God who is fully deity and have a son who's not also fully deity. And that's me. And he's saying, I decide who will and will not see the truth. The Father is one with me. I am one with the Father. And I now decide who sees the truth. Meaning all of man's attempts to know God outside of Jesus Christ are futile. They're futile. Without him revealing the Father to those whom he will. Martin Luther said, Christ must do and must give everything. Love that statement. Christ must do and must give everything. Well, beloved, I hope what you're hearing through Jesus' simple prayer here is his identification with the sovereign hand of God, but yet how it was committed into his own hand. Why? Because he has such an intimate personal relationship with his Father, going from the Father of a nation to the Father of individuals. That's what the Lord is looking for. So don't see this morning and ever hear God as God who is so high and holy and lifted up. And don't miss my words here. He is, certainly. But understand that God in his own way has given to you and me the privilege, if you're a believer, the privilege to know him on an intimate and personal level. And every person who's a true believer can say amen to that, right? Can you explain that? No, I can't explain it. 
I don't know how God has confirmed in me the truth other than through his word and revealing the truth to me, not because I'm something special, but because God in his own divine work has decided that it was going to be in his will for Bruce Goldsmith to know the truth about who Jesus is. And he's done that for every believer out here. There was nothing that man did in order to say, aha, I figured it out. I did it. God would say, no, you didn't. The only thing you know is what I gave you. That brings a sense of humility, doesn't it? A great sense of humility. And that's the point. We've got to be like infants. We've got to accept what God has said to us as truth, just like an infant would. Now, finishing this, after understanding all that we have, and he'll continue on this as we go through Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, the warnings, the continual uh, going after the heart of people to say, listen, you must listen to me. Listen, 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 listen. Receive what I'm saying to you. Because if you don't, there is great judgment coming. Many, in fact, Jesus would say this. You remember when we studied this? There are two paths, the wide road and the narrow road. Many are on the wide road thinking that they're on the path to heaven by their own achievements and their own works and the whatever they can come up with on their own. Many will find that path and many will go off into eternal damnation. That grieves our hearts. Conversely, he says, few that find the way. And that's because God does the work in the heart. And so now, though, after getting through all of that, he offers this amazing and beautiful personal invitation saying, not just to the nation, but to the people who thought of themselves as nothing because they knew the religious leaders were something, at least they thought they were. But to themselves, they thought, there's no way I could ever have a relationship with the Lord in the way that they have. And now Jesus has said, oh, yes, you can. And so he says in verse 28, come to me, come to me. And here's where we see the movement from God's sovereign hand of opening the mind to now the, the essential need that you and I have to respond to his call. We have it a requirement on us by God to respond to him. And so he says, come to me, meaning that now that you know I'm the father's son and he has committed all things to me, I'm opening a way for you to know the father. But you have to come by faith. You have to believe. Everything that I've told you, again, just like a child believes a parent. I'll say it again. Salvation is not achieved through human wisdom. It's not earned by learning some church creed or some ritual or following along with some human priest, but by Jesus alone. Well, listen, I, you and I could argue the point all day long in our humanness. Surely, that's not the way to heaven. Surely, there's other ways. I mean, that's your opinion, Bruce. No. Jesus came to prove who he is. Remember all the miracles he's done? He was setting himself up for this. And so we are to submit to his lordship, confessing our sins to him as our high priest, which is why the writer to the Hebrews, which is a letter to the Jewish people, the believers, reminding them. He's basically, if you remember our study in Hebrews, he's writing to three different groups of people. One of those was, was so far on the fringe that they were abandoning everything. He says in verse 28 of chapter 7, for the law, talking about the Mosaic law, appoints men as high priests who are weak. In other words, Yes, it was of the law. God gave the law through Moses. It was for the high priest to offer the sacrifices in the temple yearly and regularly, daily. 
but they're weak. Why? Because they're just human beings. This is why they had to do the sacrifices day after day after day, year after year after year, because there was none effect through a human priest. The priest couldn't do it. But then he follows this by saying, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son. Notice the capital S. Made perfect, how long? Forever. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the appeaser of our sin. He is the propitiation for our sin. Acts 10.43, of him, talking about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. In other words, you want to know about Jesus through the Old Testament? Read the prophets. They, they gave testimony of him. That through his name, everyone who believes in him, God receives forgiveness of sins. I love how the Spirit writes this. He doesn't distinguish the pronouns. Let me read it again. Of him all the prophets bear witness through him, through his name, everyone who believes in him. You say, well, who's he talking about? God or Jesus? Yes. That's the point. I am one with the Father. I don't need to distinguish who I am. Yes, there's a role. The Father has his role in an earthly sense, in a heavenly sense. But as God, they are one. And so the Father opens the mind, the Son does the work, but together they are one God along with the Spirit. John 3, these verses that you all know well, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness as a picture of the Son who would come to hang on the cross, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. That's the general call of salvation. God puts out the general call, it's called in theology, where God says, for all who will come to me, look, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, okay, the whoever is talking about the people who God has opened the eyes to, to see and to respond. But again, there's the response that's necessary from every person. Going on in Jesus's illustration, I mean, his invitation, notice in verse 28, Come to me, there's the invitation, but notice how he qualifies this, all who are. Come to me, all who are. What do you mean by that? All who are what? Well, let's hold on a minute. Let's get to that. Who understand their condition. These are the people who have to understand the condition they're in. Well, what's the condition they're in? Okay, look at verse 28 again. Weary and heavy laden. Now, why does he say that? He's saying that because to be, there were people who were living under the Jewish legal system, the Mosaic system, that were burdened with trying to be righteous enough to be accepted into the kingdom. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees created as a fallacy for them. They paraded themselves as being, look, we're the only ones who are really going to make it. The rest of you really don't have a shot. But they... they created these traditions and heaped upon the people these burdens that people couldn't bear. And we'll see that much more clearly next time. I'm going to read you something that's just going to shock you as to what they came up with that the Talmud gives to us. And they created such an exhaustion on the people's part that they were not only physically exhausted, but they were spiritually exhausted in trying to be righteous enough, thinking there was something within them that they could do to inherit eternal life. But God says, no, that is not how eternal life comes about. 
The way eternal life comes about is you have to understand, again, hammering the same point, you can't do it. There is nothing you can do to be good enough to satisfy the requirements of my Father. There's nothing you can do. That's why I came, Jesus would say. If we were having this conversation with him, this is how I think it would be going, just as I said. But Lord, surely there's something that I can do in order to get you to be pleased with me. Nope. But if I did this, if I did that, if I just worked harder, nope. Those are good. Thank you for doing that. But I really want you to do all that after I've saved you. That's what James would tell us, right? Our works are shown by the fact that we are believers. But our human hearts would say, no, there's something I got to do. But Jesus is continually saying, no, I'm telling you, this is why I've come. I came to do everything that you can't do. And when a person comes to that place, that place being accepting the fact that you are in no way able to fix this on your own, that's when you will have, look what he says in verse 28, rest. That's when you will have rest. Now, folks, tell me how many people live life burdened with life to the point, and I'm talking about just life and spiritual life, to the point where they just are exhausted and have no real rest. Everything in our lives pushes us to find some kind of rest, right? Cell phones, homes, cars, jobs, relationships, everything is an attempt by us to find some type of internal rest. Now, you may not think like that, but that's really what we're doing. Oh, if I only had this. Oh, if I could only do this. That job would be so much better. This relationship would be so much better. That house would be so much better. These clothes would be so much better. And I would feel better about myself. And there's a sense of rightness about that. But spiritually speaking, none of that will give us the rest that we're really looking for. Only Jesus can give that. He says, when you come to the place where you realize my Father is in sovereign control over everything, and He submitted that control to me. I am the judge. I am the Savior. And until you realize you cannot do your life on your own, that's when you will find rest, when you do figure that out. But notice, again, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging with our responsibility. Notice verse 29. He says, Now, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. Now, you know what the yoke was. The yoke was that implement, if you will, that was hung on the horse or the oxen that would pull the cart or pull the plow. And it was pretty heavy. I mean, it could have been 100 pounds at least at times, depending on what it was used for. But the whole point was to guide it, to make that animal submit to the farmer. That was the purpose of it. And so Jesus just picks up on that. And they would have understood this in a farming community. And the Lord says, you must take the yoke that I put on you and wear it submissively. Okay? That's the picture of the yoke. It is to guide. So put it on. And what I mean by that, it was it is there so that you would be under the yoke of not just the farmer in that agrarian sense, but you're under the yoke of the teacher. Well, who's the teacher? Jesus is. Put on the yoke that I want you to wear, and I will teach you. You will learn from me. You will be my student, and from that you will then grow 
and you will learn how to live life in a way that is spiritually fit for you, spiritually fit for me, and you will be the mature person that you really want to be. So when you submit to me, and or excuse me, and when you submit to me, notice this, Jesus says, my burden will not be heavy. Isn't that beautiful? My burden will not be heavy. In other words, I will never give you something that is going to create so much pressure that you can't handle it. And he tells us that in his word, doesn't he? I'm not going to give you something in life. I'm not going to require something of you that is so difficult that you cannot handle. Now, specifically in context, as we've been talking about, he's talking about salvation. I will give you the ability to be saved, not because of what you do, but because you have submitted your heart to me and I will do the work in saving you. That's what he's really talking about here. But we could take it a little further and understand that whatever comes to us in life, because Jesus has said this in other places, he will give us the ability to meet those things that come along. He says, my burden is not heavy. And notice the rest of the verse. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in your Bible, you may see capital letters for the words, you will find rest for your souls. That's always, if your translation does this, a reference back to an Old Testament prophecy. In this case, Jesus is picking up on Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Now, the context there is, it was a time when Israel refused to submit to God. This is why he's saying this. I want you to submit to me because, hey, back then, when Jeremiah was prophesying about what's going to happen when you're going to go under siege by the Babylonians, the Hebrew people didn't submit. They didn't follow me. <clears throat> and God said, if you return to the message of the prophets, which is what they have always preached, repentance, submit to God, be reconciled to him, you will then have the peace or the rest for your souls. So again, the Lord is just using illustrations that the people of the day would have understood. For you and me, it would be whatever you're trying to find in this life to have rest, you're not going to find it outside of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. I'm not saying that your life is going to be somehow easy, Jesus promised that was not going to be the case. John 16, in this life you will have trouble. But he did follow that with what? But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. In the midst of our most difficult times, we will still have peace as we trust him. That's what the psalmist said in the 23rd Psalm, didn't he? When David wrote those infamous words, look at it with me. David, who was undergoing some severe trials, self-inflicted in a lot of ways, comes back to the truth, and he says, the Lord is what? My shepherd. There's a lot in that. In fact, it's all what we just said. Every person who understood what a shepherd was would, understood that, would understand that the shepherd is the leader. The shepherd is the one who guides the sheep. He's the one who leads them. In fact, let's look at what he says. He leads me, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. In other words, there's times where I may want to fight to get to the next best thing, but the Lord says, no, you need to lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. Just the nurturing goodness of the Lord. He restores my soul. Listen, do you need your soul restored? 
He guides me in the paths of righteousness. I don't, I don't know how to find the path of righteousness. A sheep doesn't know how to find green pastures. You leave a sheep alone and they'll just wander off. The Lord has to lead them. And, and David is just acknowledging it's the Lord who guides me in righteousness. I can't do that on my own. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in other words, the pains and the pressures of life are all around me, even death itself, but I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to fear evil. Why? Because the shepherd is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They're, they're protection for me. They're an encouragement. They keep me on the right way. You prepare a table even in the presence of my enemies. You got people who you're struggling with, people who come against you spiritually. The Lord will help you with that. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know what David's saying right there? I'm so rich. My soul is so rich. Yes, I live in a world that's troubled and it has problems and I feel the effects of the problems of this world. But inwardly, in the midst of it all, my soul is rich. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me. How long? All the days of my life. And you know what happens at the end? I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Folks, listen, that's peace. That's rest. Jesus is saying, you've got to see what I'm telling you. You've got to be willing to acknowledge your pride and your arrogance and simply surrender yourself to me. That's when you'll find peace. Come, come to me. You have a responsibility. You hear. God has done the work, but you hear and you have to respond. Don't push him away. I don't know what a greater Thanksgiving message could be than to have a father who loves us that way. You know, there are a lot of people who are having to make a lot of difficult decisions right now. I've had a lot of conversations with people over these last couple weeks that are making life-altering decisions. I mean, really serious changes. And not just one, but quite a few people that are just in the precipice of asking the question, Lord, if I make this decision, what's life going to look like? How's it going to be different? And am I going to be okay? What's going to happen with my family? People are making decisions that are life-altering all the time. That may be you. You may be looking down the figurative barrel of a shotgun, and I hope that's figurative. <laughs> and you're wondering what tomorrow's going to be like. You've had some issues that have gone on throughout these last several months, and you're finding yourself weighted down with trying to figure out everything. And the Lord is just offering the same thing. Listen, I can make it right. Oh, you may have to go through the deal that you have created for yourself. You know, there is the reaping, sowing principle. We get kind of what we make our decisions about. But I'll be with you through it all. I'll help you through it all. But you've got to come to me. You've got to submit yourself to me. And let me be Lord who I am but I'm asking you to let me be that for you. Boy, I'll tell you what, when a soul is released like that to the Lord, that's when rest comes. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I, I think that if we were all honest, 
even with our, ourselves I'm talking about. There is the awareness that we all seek rest. Kids can't wait to stay up all night. Parents can't wait to get in bed. Because we're tired. Life beats us down. The struggles of things that come at us just get so heavy. This last year and a half, two years, with all the changes with COVID and government and issues with this and that, Lord, it just gets to be heavy. And so this morning, we thank you right here on the eve of, of Thanksgiving as a national holiday. We thank you on two respects. One, well, really three. One, because you are God and that we have you to give us the knowledge of yourself. Two, that we have an amazing Savior by your own hand and your own will, your own graciousness to provide for us everything that we can't do for ourselves. And three, that we would really receive the rest that we're longing for. Lord, I think that if every soul understood that there is a rest that's given by you, they could face everything that comes along. We look at our, the people that have, have made such a big deal about life and have had everything that this life can afford, yet many take their own lives. We realize that there's no rest in that soul. There's no peace in that heart. Lord, would they just come to you? Would you open the hearts of people who may be hearing this or people who need to know you and help them to see these truths so that they can have what they're really longing for? We know that you delight to do that. We know that that's why you've come. You've told us that. And so we just trust you now to do just that. Father, whoever's hearing this this morning, we pray that you would rescue the lost and that you would make yourself great in the midst of doing so. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.